Today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, I'll be talking about the use of stories in coaching and I'll be giving you some great stories and poems, actually, that uh, I use regularly in my coaching practice. I think you'll enjoy this. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Hi there, and welcome back to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, or maybe this is your first time, in which case, welcome. We're going to be talking today about using stories in coaching. Now, it's been done for a long time. Obviously, stories have been around human beings as long as there have been human beings who have language to talk, to, to communicate. What did they want to communicate? Important things. How did they do that? In stories. Before television, before radio, before podcasts, people gathered around fireplaces or whatever they told stories for eons, generations. Stories were the way that meaning got passed on, lessons, how to live life, how to be a good human being, got told in stories. The essence of many religions is stories. Jesus is parables, you know, it's, it's in us. And it's really important in, in, in coaching as well. Today, I'm going to give you some, some stories that I've told and used many times in story in, in my coaching practice. I think you'll find it very useful. I also have used some poems from time to time. I love poetry. Uh, last month was poetry month or maybe, yeah, I think it was April. Um, might've missed the boat on that one as far as, you know, doing it with the month, but it's still kind of like a story with really good attention to the languaging. And, you know, another facet of what I do is hypnosis and that's, obviously paying very close attention to languaging. You tell stories, tell metaphors, and how you tell them, as we talked about last week with the uh, intonation and the change of your tonality, etc. You can get messages across through your stories. Now, I'm going to start with a, a story about um, Mother Teresa. It's not exactly really about Mother Teresa, but she is involved here. There is a poem attributed to her that you may have seen. You've maybe seen it on posters. Maybe you've seen it on uh, someone's wall in a dormitory or office or whatever. It's, it's quite popular and it's quite wonderful, but uh, she didn't write it. She, it's attributed to her because apparently after she died, they found a copy of it on her bulletin board somewhere, but it is actually um, from somebody else. I'll tell you all about that in a minute. It's, it's actually called the Paradoxical Commandments. I had a client recently who was struggling with the nasty comments that people seem to leave online these days, you know. But in spite of my client's best efforts to do good work and help people, it sometimes went unappreciated, let's just say. So I was reminded of the Paradoxical Commandments by Kent Keith. 
Milton Erickson seemed to be able to embrace paradox quite readily, as anyone has taken my Ericksonian hypnosis classes will tell you. It's nice to know you can enjoy both at the same time. Interestingly, the verses that I'm going to read to you today were found on the wall of uh, Mother Teresa's home for children in Calcutta, India, and are widely attributed to her. This is the version of the Paradoxical Commandments by Kent M. Keith. He wrote, People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness will make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you do help them. Help people anyway. Give the world your best you have. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. Now, I believe that Mother Teresa's poem was pretty much that. But she added a final stanza. Um, I'm not sure if she did or not. I honestly don't know but it was attributed to her. It apparently was found in her place in Calcutta. So after the final stanza that Kent Keith wrote, uh, give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you have anyway. In her poem, it says, you see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. which is a really nice way to end the poem. Just not necessarily certain that it was original. In fact, clearly it wasn't, but um, it's a nice, nice thing. So you are free, of course, to use this any way you want in your storytelling with your clients. It's just a nice story, poem, isn't it? I think it's really great. Because um, like with my client, people were mean. People would say mean things. And it shouldn't stop you because haters got to hate, you know, <laughs> that's just the truth. And these days, it's so easy to take pot shots at another person. I'm going to tell you another story about people being mean to each other and yet finding it a source of inspiration. I might have told this story. I've told it recently. I certainly hope I haven't told it here before, but I'll tell it to you now. And if you're hearing again, that's, that's, that's the way it goes. About, oh gosh, now probably 10 years ago, it seems like, um, my wife and I took a trip together. We rarely have done that. We've taken lots of trips separately. You know, I work, she works, um, you know, have traveled the world quite a bit, but we decided uh, let's do one together. So I, I tagged along when she was on her way to Oslo, Norway for a what was called the International Teaching Artists Conference. 
that's another story unto itself, but I'll just let, let it go there. And while we were there, we revisited the Henrik Ibsen Museum. Henrik Ibsen, you probably know, is a playwright, a Norwegian playwright. He is the second most produced playwright in the world. More plays of his have been done than anybody else except William Shakespeare. And we went to visit his house. His house is now a museum in Oslo, Norway. So this is where he lived and where he wrote his plays. Most of the uh, house, most of the apartment is, is accessible. The only room that you can't go into is the office in which he sat and actually wrote his plays. So that is pretty much untouched as it was in like 1912 or something when he, when he passed on. What's fascinating to me about this room are two things. One, his work habits were exemplified by this grandfather clock that was in there. And the docent of the museum told us that every morning he would start writing at 9 a.m. And he would write until 1130 precisely, because as soon as that clock struck 1130, he would put his pen down. Didn't matter if he was in the middle of a word, middle of a sentence, he would put the pen down. Maybe maybe he'd finish a word, but as soon as he finished that word, middle of the sentence, he'd put his pen down because he said, if you finish the sentence, if you finish a paragraph, when you come back from lunch, you don't know where to start. You have to think about it. If you have to stop and really get back into gear. If you leave it in the middle of a sentence, you know exactly where to pick up from. So that was his work habit. I find that fascinating. I also found it fascinating that he was, you know, very disciplined. He'd do it every morning at nine o'clock. He'd be at his writing desk. I've used that as an inspiration for my own work. The other thing I found absolutely fascinating is he had a very large portrait of August Strindberg on his wall. Now, August Strindberg, if you were alive when they were doing things like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, um, would have been just scavenging Ibsen all the time. They would have done it to each other because that's the way they were. They hated each other. They were mortal enemies. They called each other mortal enemies. Mortal enemies. So why do you think Ibsen had this painting, this large painting, it was the biggest thing in the room, of his mortal enemy on his wall? Why? Because of motivation. It motivated him. It motivated him to say, I'll show you, Strindberg. I can write better plays than you, you bum. And he, he would get to work. It was the largest thing. And it was basically looking over his shoulder as he wrote. It was on the wall opposite his writing desk. So it would be like behind him as he was sitting at his desk writing his plays. I found that absolutely fascinating. But that's a good indication, isn't it? Well, people can say mean things, but write good plays anyway. You know, if people are kind, people may accuse you of selfish motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. I think it fits right in, don't you? So stories are a great way to get messages across. When you're a coach, you want to say things to your clients that they get, that they take in, that they utilize, right? So you want to be having a whole bunch of different stories that are very, very useful for them to hear and to understand and to sort of take in and grok, as it were. I, uh, I tell lots of stories in my coaching. 
tell stories about uh, how when I met <clears throat> Aaron Copeland, I don't know if you know who Aaron Copeland is, but I was a music major in college. I wanted to be a pianist and maybe a conductor and maybe a composer. I studied all those things, maybe a rock and roll. I knew that too. Um, but in college, I was pretty serious, like classical composer, pianist kind of track. And um, uh, during my senior year, I think it might have been after my senior year, I, I spent five years, so it gets mixed up. Um, but somewhere along the line, I took this amazing composer symposium in at the University of Buffalo. I didn't attend the University of Buffalo, but I did go there for the symposium. It was amazing. It was amazing. Um, George Crum was there. Names that may not mean anything to you, but George Crum was, I loved his piano music. I, I played some of his piano music. It was extraordinary. He was there. I, I had a beer with George Crum. It was great. It was awesomely great. Um, it was the whole thing was overseen by a, a man who was a professor at University of Buffalo at UB at the time, Morton Feldman, another great, amazing American composer. It was so interesting to be with these people. But I also had the chance to meet Aaron Copeland. He was, he was kind of the main featured speaker. Um, if you don't know who he is, Aaron Copeland is a very famous American composer. He wrote things like Appalachian Spring and, and, um, Rodeo and Fanfare for a Common Man. I'm sure you've heard his music, whether you know knew it was his music or not. It's used in, in movies. It's used in ceremonies. It's great. And, and it's used in ballet. It's used in ballet. He wrote a piece called Appalachian Spring for um, Martha Graham. And so during this talk that he was giving, and, you know, he's very being very chummy. You know, he sat, instead of sitting behind the podium or behind the professor's desk he came around and sat on front of the, the the teacher's desk you know in front of this classroom and I was sitting in the front row center so I was like knee to knee with Aaron Copeland and it was really cool and I, I I wanted to you know connect with him on some level you know so he said are there any questions so I I you know I didn't know very much honestly but I knew a couple of things I knew Appalachian Spring and so I, I raised my hand and I said um Mr. Copeland, what was your inspiration for Appalachian Spring? And he said, well, now, by the way, I was expecting some kind of poetic kind of answer because as a young student, you know, you'd, you'd read stories about how like Beethoven was, Beethoven was tromping through the woods one day when he, you know, was inspired by the sound of birds singing and the storm coming and the rustling through the wind of the trees and he wrote this thing called the pastoral symphony based on this it was very evocative of the moments in music that he did in the orchestra you know, so you'd hear stories like that so i expected a story like that i expected him to be saying well i was having this wonderful spring experience in appalachia one one spring in 1945 or something but he didn't say that at all he said this he said i was hanging out in my apartment in brooklyn <laughs> he's a, a Brooklyn boy hanging out my I don't even city he was hanging out he was in his apartment in Brooklyn and he got a phone call his phone rang it was Martha Graham Martha Graham the famous modern composer I mean I'm sorry that's wrong um, modern dancer Martha Graham modern dancer and she said uh, Aaron 
I need music. I need 20 minutes of dance music by next Thursday. I'm doing this piece. Uh, uh, I'm commissioned this new ballet, and, and I need uh, 20 minutes of dance music by next Thursday. If you can have it for me, there's 200 bucks in it for you. And he said, I needed the money. So I said, Martha, you got it. And and he said, that was my inspiration. He said, looked at me and he looked, he pointed his finger right at me. He said, there is nothing as inspirational as a deadline. And at first I thought, man, that sucks. That is nothing like Beethoven. <laughs> That's nothing like what I wanted to hear. But that has stuck with me because if you know what, in coaching, if you want your clients to get something done, give them a deadline. One of the th chief things that I do in coaching is give people deadlines, give them a target to shoot for, even if it's completely artificial. Having a timer, you know, get your kitchen timer out and say, I'm going to spend, you know, a half an hour doing this thing and nothing else for the half hour. Nothing. I'm not going to text. I'm not going to email. I'm not going to do anything for a half hour. Click the timer. And now you've got 30 minutes to get it done. Suddenly this completely arbitrary deadline is going like, okay, let's go. It's amazing. Now, speaking of Martha Graham, this is a wonderful story about Martha Graham who, when she was giving advice to another, at this point in time, famous choreographer named Agnes DeMille. Um, Agnes DeMille was, was going through a period of time where she wasn't being successful yet and um, was uncertain as to whether this was the right, right career path for her, whether she was good enough. Ever heard that before? Am I good enough? She was wondering if she was good enough to, you know, continue in her field as a as a choreographer making new dances and martha graham wrote to her and said there is a vitality a life force a quickening that is translated through you into action and because there is only one of you in all time this expression is unique and if you block it it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. Now, I love that quote. I'd read it to you again, but you can just back up the tape if you want to. But that is extraordinary. And that's so important. It's such a vital message to give to people who are experiencing doubts about things. I often tell my clients, you know, there's in all of history, there has never been another you. The world has never seen the likes of you before. Right? Very, 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 very important message to be able to get across that whatever you think about it, your expression is unique. You don't have to compare yourself to others. You don't. You're just you. There will never be another you. Your song, your dance, your coaching, your 
business is uniquely your own. Make it so. Keep it that way. That's a beautiful, beautiful story to have and be able to tell the folks. And it's great to have these stories. Great to have these stories at your fingertips. You know, it's a great thing to have tons of these things and poems. The first thing I talked to you about was a poem. One of my other favorite poems to have, I often think about, is uh, by Robert Frost called uh, A Road Not Taken or The Road Not Taken. I'm going to do my best to recite it to you. I, I, I said it to memory a few years ago, and um, memory being what it is, I, I'll probably be close to it. It goes something like this. It says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, and then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim, for it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I saved the first for another day, but knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling with this with a sigh some day, ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Isn't that a beautiful poem? Uh, I think I might have goofed up a word or two, but I think it's pretty darn close. Not bad for a first go. But what's great about having something like that at your fingertips is you can give advice. You can give advice and it would be just as good, I'm sure. Hey, go your own way. Forge your own path. It's good advice. But when you say it in poetry, when you say those things in poetry, it has a certain clout to it. You got to admit, it's it's kind of amazing to, to be able to do that, be able to, to recite that for a client or any poem or any sort of quote Quotes, by the way, are a great way of giving embedded commands. I think we talked about those a little bit last week. Um, how you shift your tonality and give a you know direct suggestion through a story. And quoting a whole poem, quoting a whole thing, a whole story, a Mother Teresa, you know, it's it's a great way to get a message across. Also fun to have a little bit of levity. One of my teachers, a man named Dave Dobson, was very fond of jokes because he said, you know, one of the things we do is, let's say, I'll use the term neo-Ericksonian hypnotists. He didn't, of course, use that term. He was Dobsonian. He forged his own path. He taught other than conscious communication, OTCC. But um, one of the things that both he and all Ericksonians do pretty much is interrupt old patterns. And his point was, as long as you're interrupting old patterns so that you can create new patterns, you might as well uh, inject some humor into there. Might as well do it with humor, have fun. And there's a lot of, as I'm sure you're probably aware if you've studied any NLP, if you've taken any seminars from Richard Bander or Tony Robbins or whatever, you know, there's a lot of humor that's being uh, put around. So this, this story I'm about to tell you is kind of, um, it's meaningful. 
but it's also kind of uh, a joke, kind of a funny, funny story. It's you'll you'll see. It's it's useful in a variety of ways, but and it is also funny. So the story goes like this: a man and his wife were plagued by bad drivers performing bad parking around their house, making it very difficult for them to pull into their own driveway, in spite of clearly marked signs disallowing such activity. One day, fed up with all these shenanigans, the husband snapped. That's it. I've had it, he shouted. You've had uh, what, exactly? Asked the wife. He said, I've had enough of these morons parked where they shouldn't. I'm going to teach them a lesson. And he stormed upstairs. His wife was a bit unnerved by this decision and wasn't exactly sure what was going, what he was going to do. Challenged the driver to a duel? Scratch obscenities in the car's paint job? Soon the man returned up from upstairs with a pad of paper and a thick marker and some scotch tape. Uh, he sat them down on the kitchen table and in big letters in all caps, he wrote, do not park your car here. And under that, he wrote in a somewhat vaguely sinister manner, I will have no alternative. All of which was underlined several times for added impact. Very good, said the wife. That should do the trick. So he turned to walk out. He was clearly on a man on a mission. And then she said, uh, one thing. I said, what? Clearly annoyed at having been stopped in mid-tracks. He said, do you think maybe it loses some of its authority being written on a child's Kermit the Frog notepad? I think maybe it would have. I think it's a good point. It's a good point. So, so, you know, when you tell stories that have humor in them, you can do a variety of things with that. You can be interrupting patterns while giving some suggestions within there as well. You can do lots of things. One of the things that um, Dave Dobson would do is he would very subtly mirror back to the person's other than conscious communication of their yucky patterns. So what they did with their body when they were you know, talking about their upsets or their blocks or the things that bothered them. They use their bodies in a certain way. He'd notice that and he'd mirror back to them the way they use their bodies while he was telling a joke. So suddenly they were seeing this very f- oddly familiar body language coming across, but instead of it leading to someplace horrible, it led to humor. And so that further interrupted their pattern. So, couple more stories I'm going to tell you for today before we sign off for today. This is a story you might have heard. You might have heard the story. There's a lot of variations on it I've seen over the years. I don't know who it's attributed to rightly. So if I did, I would attribute it to that person. I I do believe that people should have uh, credit for what they do. I just don't know where this came from. I don't even remember where I heard it the first time, to tell you the truth. So uh, there you go. But maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe you can write in and let me know because uh, it'd be useful. So, anyway, um, goes like this. There's basically it's the starfish story, and maybe, like I said, you've heard this. But a man was walking down a beach, and it doesn't have to be a man, by the way. Just it is in my story because that's the way I heard it, and it's probably because I'm a man. I think of it that way, but it's also the way I heard it. Just for the record, now, a man is walking down the beach, and uh, it, there had been a bad storm the night before, and there are all these starfish that had washed up on the shore. There were millions of them, millions of them all over the shore. 
And further down the beach, he saw this little kid picking up one starfish by another and throwing it back into the ocean. Because these are starfish, you know, they they need to be in the water. So when they wash up on the shore, they basically will die because they, they need to be in water. So they, uh, it's kind of like drowning in air, you know, how fish are. So this little boy was um, picking up, let's say it's a little girl, this little person <laughs> was picking up one starfish after another and throwing it back in. And the man, as he walked up, just watched this kid doing this. And finally, as he got close enough, he said, hey, what you doing? He said, I'm saving the starfish. And he said, oh, you know, that was a big storm. And there are millions of starfish on this beach. I mean, it's not going to make a difference. Uh, if you throw, you know, a few starfish back in, there's millions out here. And the little boy just barely even looked at him, just looked at the starfish he had in his hand and then glanced at the man and then threw it, threw it into the ocean. He said, made a difference to that one. And the man thought about it for a minute while the kid was busy throwing some more starfish in. And then he started picking up starfish and throwing them in along with the little boy or little girl, as it were. It's a story. I doubt it really happened. You can tell it any way you want. It's a great story. Probably a little, you know, touches you a little bit in the heart, doesn't it? When just listening to it. Tell it your way. You can tell stories your own way. Stories, if they're true, so much the better. But they don't have to be true. They have to be good stories with meaning in them. So I don't know where the story came from. Maybe you do. And maybe you know the right way to tell it. That's okay. You do it your way then. And I'm glad to remind you of it if you had forgotten it all. It's a great story to be able to tell to people. Because again, do what you do. Be you. Make your difference in the world. Make your difference in the world. Now, last story I'll leave you with today is something that I, I use in Ericksonian hypnosis, my teaching of Ericksonian hypnosis, which now, of course, I call neo-Ericksonian hypnosis for a variety of reasons. But um, one of the characteristics of Ericksonian hypnosis, at least as far as I was taught by Stephen Gilligan, because of course, I, I think it's of course, I think you know that I never studied with Milton Erickson himself. He was dead before I'd ever heard of him, but I have studied with a lot of his students, and student, including uh, Stephen Gilligan. Stephen Gilligan tells me, and I think it's probably true, that in Ericksonian hypnosis, there is a distinction that you can be you can be aware of between the conscious mind and the other than conscious mind, although, by the way, that's not an Ericksonian term, other than conscious. Erickson would refer to the subconscious or the unconscious. So let's use his terminology. According to Steve Gilligan, there's a difference between the conscious and the unconscious in that the conscious mind likes things to be either or. Conscious mind is an either or logic base. Things are good or they're bad. They're black or they're white, they're off or they're on, they're up or they're down, they're in or they're out. You know, it's either or. The unconscious mind, using Erickson's terminology, is perfectly open and accessible to a, a paradoxical reality, if you will. You can have both at the same time. Things can be both on and off 
at the same time, black and white at the same time, up and down, in and out. It doesn't make any sense to the conscious mind whatsoever. But the unconscious mind goes, yeah, cool, no problem. All right. It's like dreaming. You know, you, you know, you're in a nice warm bed, but you also know that you're dreaming about, you know, skating across the tundra or something like that. Um, you're there and you're also not there. You're in your nice warm bed. It's nice to know you can enjoy both at the same time. So this is a story um, that kind of illustrates that. I believe I first heard this story from Dan Millman. Uh, the author of The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, a gentleman who has been on an earlier podcast with me here in this Essential Coaching Skills podcast series. But interestingly, I was recently listening to Audible and listening to his most recent book, which is called The Hidden School. And in that book, he writes the same story differently. Yeah, it's attributed very differently. So I'm not sure that I learned this from Dan Mimmon, although I think I did. Anyway, it goes like this. There's a, a, a man, historical figure named Hotai, who you are probably aware of, although you might not know you're, you're aware of him. He is uh, also known as the Happy Buddha. You probably are aware that there are different images of the Buddha. Some of them are, you know, quite thin and, and straight-backed and in meditation. And then there are other forms of the Buddha where he's big and fat and he's smiling and laughing and sometimes in different postures. Well, apparently they're two different historical people. Um, and Hotai was this uh, ancient Chinese Buddha, I think, that um, if I remember correctly, who was referred to as the happy Buddha because you know he's depicted as this round, full-bellied person because that's kind of the earth. It's kind of symbolic of you know him being part of the earth. So it's earth happy energy. So anyway, one day, long time ago in ancient China, a dispute arose between a merchant and a customer. The dispute grew quite vociferous. I love that word. And people throughout the village gathered around to witness and participate in the escalating tensions. Round about that time, Hotai, known far and wide as the Happy Buddha, and depicted today in statuary as being fat and smiling, was observed entering the village. Look, here comes Hotai. He'll be able to settle this. So the angry merchant told his side of the story first. Hotai listened and nodded and laughed and said, yes, you're right. Then the customer said, wait, you haven't heard my side of the story. Listen to what I have to say. So Hotai listened to the customer's side of the story and nodding and laughing said, yes, you're right. The villagers who were listening said, now hold on. You said the merchant is right. And then you said that the customer is right. They can't both be right. Hotai laughed even more heartily and said, yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. And you're right to tell stories. Stories are wonderful things to have. At the Essential Coaching Skills podcast, and uh, it's linked to my website, EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Within the library there, I've got a whole bunch of stories. And um, gosh, I wish I could tell you they're free to get access to, but they're not. They are free 
if you join as a membership site. But there are tons of stories. You don't need my membership site to do that. Google it. Google is amazing, right? You can just get teaching tales. You can do Aesop's fables. You There's millions. And the, the chicken soup series, there's lots of great stories in there. Um, stories. It's where it's at. You want to have a whole bunch of them. And, you know, also from your own life, like my stories about, you know, going to Oslo. It's a true story. Uh, meeting Aaron Copeland. That's a true story. Meaningful stories from your own life are perhaps even better. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But they're yours. And you can tell them with uh, congruence that they're really true and happen to you. So maybe that's, maybe that is better. Anyway, stories are great things. As you probably are aware, Milton Erickson is famous uh, as a hypnotherapist, famous for telling stories. They have power. So avail yourself of them to make your coaching even better. We'll do more of this. Thank you for listening. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want any more information about today's show, please visit our website at www.essentialcoachingskills.com. Be sure to tune in again next week for our next episode and discover even more about the systems and the secrets that set the best apart.